Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. And welcome back to God's Planning. I am Father Gregory Pine, joined here remotely by Father Joseph Anthony Cress, checking in from St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Charlottesville, Virginia. How are things in Charlottesville? What up? Um, they're they're chaotic. I mean, this is this is an exciting and, and crazy time right now, which we're going to dive into in a little bit. But um, it's it's good. It, it's uh, there's there's beauty in the chaos. Um, mm-hmm. One of a, one of my absolute favorite lyrics from uh, Irish singer songwriter Dermot Kennedy is, uh, "Your soul's a mix of chaos and art." And it's like I feel like that's where we're we're in the heart of right now. It's just a bunch of chaos and art, and it's beautiful. Oh yeah, I can dig it. So you're um you're on the campus of the University of Virginia. You're the chaplain yep. there. Wahoo and, wah. And then you're also I don't know what that means, but I'll just pretend like I didn't hear it. Um, and then you're also at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish there, uh, the University Parish. So you have the experience of both collegiate life and of parochial life uh, in a time of pandemic. So give us a sense for yeah the campus feel, the parish feel, the Charlottesville city feel. How are things cooking there in the uh, the old Blue Ridge? Oh man, uh, the university feel is fascinating because uh, all of our students, we all went away for spring break and then never came back. <laughs> it, it was like, it was the craziest experience. It was like, okay, spring break, people go on mission trips, people like, you know, do whatever. And then just nobody returned. Mm. Like it was, it just, everything stopped. And so there was a lot of like, there was a lot of sadness and grief because especially for our fourth year students, um, you know, they didn't have graduation ceremonies. They didn't have their, uh, you know, the receiving of their degrees. Um, there was no closure for them. Um, and even when they were allowed to come back to the dorms or the, the housing to get their belongings, they were, you know, instructed, okay, get what you need to and get out. Like, mm. this is not the time to hang out and have your final parties and all that stuff. So it, it was a, it was a very kind of crazy experience to go through. Um, just that, like, um, having everything, I mean, we all experience that to some degree, but you know, almost overnight having everything stopped and, and changed. Um, it was, it was a unique, unique time. There was, like I said, for our fourth year students and, um, lack of closure, but there was a lot of kind of going through the grieving process that there was something good here that they desired, but they weren't allowed to receive and that's okay. Um, but you had to kind of go through a little bit of a grief for that and for those, for those students. Um, yeah, I mean, on the parish side, it was kind of like, all right, we're going to hit the pause button. You know, we're mm-hmm. going to move into a new phase. Um, and especially during, what was it, during Easter and Holy Week, it was really hard because uh, one of our friars here preached a sun, the Easter Sunday homily, and he was talking a lot about the beauty of the empty tomb. And all I could think of is the fact that, you know what, all of our churches are empty right now. Mm-hmm. And there, there was that real experience of showing up to the emptiness but that was a sign of the resurrection and that was like a joyous thing. And it's counterintuitive because you don't want to see churches empty, you know, but it was this reality that like, okay, there's going to be new life brought out of this and it's okay if the churches are empty for this uh, temporary period. Um, but that we have to entrust in God and that there's going to be new life brought from this. And so kind of walking with our parishioners through that understanding, but also, man, just, 
just telling them that we miss them and longing for them and hearing them like, you know, get to the point where it's like, yeah, we, there's a good in the church. There's a good to being together as the body of Christ. Um, that is our, our lives are, are lacking when that doesn't happen. And I think this, this has kind of stoked that real hunger that maybe we took for granted, um, in, in a real sense. So it's just kind of, letting our parishioners know that we as their priests long for that as well as much as they long for it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, it's like strange that, um, in the priest, excuse me, in the priest, uh, in the, in the church, there's a kind of inequality baked in, in the sense that like you have the common priesthood, right? The priesthood of all the baptized and you have the ministerial priesthood, which is called out of the common priesthood in service of the common priesthood. And, um, as a result of like this kind of differentiation within the body of Christ, you'll always, you know, you'll always experience your church life differently than the next guy. And um, it's really accentuated by the pandemic because um, the lay faithful do not have, in most circumstances or up until recently, do not have access to the sacraments, most of the sacraments in public, whereas priests continue to. And, you know, like you'll, sometimes people will try to draw parallels where like the priests are like deprived of their congregation, but, you know, that's like not really the same. Or like, you know, the lay faithful still have the, the sacraments insofar as they can make spiritual sacrifice and spiritual communion. But like, let's be honest, that's really not the same. And so you have this kind of glaring inequality where like the priests continue to have mass every day because they're the ones that can confect the Eucharist, whereas the lay faithful um, in many in many places feel, yeah, just like kind of bewildered and abandoned and heartbroken. And so then it has to like bring back into our mind's eye the question of the purpose for which um, things are different in the church, you know? So like, why is it good that there be differentiation within the church? And I think like the way that you talk about like priests, you know, kind of like longing for the parishioners, but also like trying to be of service to the parishioners in this time. It's like this, this should hammer home for us the fact that, that priests are to sacrifice for the people of God. They're to be shepherds, good shepherds who lay down their life for the sheep. And even when it assumes like really, really weird um, appearances, you know, or it's, it's in a kind, the kind of situation which formerly would have been inconceivable to most of us, you know, like it's still, it has to assume the shape of sacrifice. Yep. It has to assume the shape of a real like pastoral service, instruction in Christian life and, you know, sacramental grace, you know, in whatever way possible. So strange times, but at your parish, St. Thomas Aquinas in Charlottesville, it's like a really beautiful time because coming back to the church is coming back not only to the church, but a new church because you are in the middle or kind of at the tail end of a big building project. So tell us a little bit about what's going on at St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, it's, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's chaos because uh, we're coming back and quote unquote reopening our parish um, and the amount of unique protocols and procedures that we have to go through um, to, to be in line with the, um, the CDC and, and local health authorities and things like that to it's, it's a whole new world out there. It's kind of like the wild West because nobody's gone through this as a parish. And so we're having to kind of institute um, different aspects of um, safety protocols for our parishioners to keep them safe as they return to mass. I mean, I spent all day yesterday marking off every single pew in our church with six feet tape markers. I, I, I taped all the aisles and all that stuff. And it's like, they don't teach you how like how to do that in seminary. Like nobody expects like that's going to be a regular part of your priesthood. But I I definitely know um, you know how how to do all of that now, um, and so it's going to be a new experience for a lot of our parishioners. And 
you know, there's going to be a lot of kind of instructions as we walk through mass in this new circumstance for the very first time. And so as joyous as an occasion it is, it is to have this body of Christ, this local parish, uh, return back to um, physical union with each other. Um, it's also uh, has another layer to it for us is because we are moving out of our temporary worship space, which was our parish hall, into a brand new church. Um, just a, just under three years ago, we moved out of our uh, previous church that was too small for us and uh, had a few problems, and we started building a brand new church on that same uh, plot of land. And um, we have gone through that. And so we have this beautiful new church, neo-Romanesque uh, church that is, um, it seats just under 1,200 people. And the previous church was around 800. So we've grown the, by a seating capacity of, uh, of about 50%. And we are something that we've been longing for as a, a parish community is having this beautiful, proper uh, place of worship, which we've been in a parish hall for the last three years. And um, as, as you, you know, as well as I do, when you do something for, you know, 90 days or six months, it becomes such a routine and a rhythm. You're like, oh, man, remember what it was like before I started, uh, you know, using graph paper for all my notes? Like, I can't even think about what, what, what that was like after a full semester of that. And now after three years of being in a, a parish hall, you're like, I think I forgot what it was like to say mass in a real church. Yeah. And for our parishioners, they're like, yeah, I've. I forgot what it was like to use a kneeler and those little things, but to come into a properly purpose-built um, house of God uh, is just going to elevate everything. And to do it in um, to do it in conjunction with the reopening of the parish after this pandemic is just this beautiful image of the Lord's grace, His providence for us, but also His strength in the kind of new phase of our parish, uh, both post-COVID, but also in this new church is a really signif significant moment for us. And that's why we're excited for it. It has uh, uh, all these markers of something that is a very joyous moment for, for all of us. I think that like a lot of people have it in their minds that beautiful churches were built in the late 19th. I mean, beautiful churches were built in, you know, the fourth century in Rome, or they were built in the 12th century in France, or they were built in the United States, maybe late 19th century, maybe early 20th century. You had like a last great, you know, number of projects, maybe in the 1940s, and then things took a kind of turn uh, in the 50s and 60s. And then since then, there just hasn't been much in the way of building. And so I think it's it's kind of beyond a lot of people's um, kind of sense, or what do I mean? People have difficulty imagining what it would be like to actually uh, go through a building project of this sort, or to actually have the magnanimity and magnificence to, um, yeah, bring this type of plan uh, to completion. So for you, you're on like the threshold of a really big thing. Uh, it's a big project. I imagine it's an expensive project, mm -hmm. but I, I, you know, from the descriptions and the pictures that I've seen, it looks like it's a beautiful project. So what's it like, maybe just describe like a little bit of the parish's experience of envisioning, investing in, and bringing to completion something that's big and bold and beautiful. What's that been like? What's your experience of that been? Um, I, I think it's it's something that like you were kind of mentioning is I, we kind of have forgotten what it's like to build a, a beautiful church. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and that's just kind of the the ethos that we we live within right now is we have moved into uh, buildings that are very um, utilitarian in a sense and uh, that their symbol the 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 symbolism of different aspects is primarily uh, directed towards use and if that's not the case then it, it's a little uh, muddied to understand you know you look at other office buildings or um, we we've gotten into this especially in workplace buildings or office buildings it's this like co-working space instead of everybody has their own little cubicle or, or things like this it's much more that everybody wants an open floor plan and so we're we're dealing with this uh kind of weird sense of building um mentality uh i think a lot of people watch HGTV uh, on a regular basis. I know that's a favorite with, even with it, our priory, you know, everybody loves uh, watching HGTV and, and those kind of things. But we don't think about what it would be to build a church. Mm-hmm. And a lot of architecture uh, firms and um, construction companies, they may have an ecclesial element to the firm, maybe maybe one architect who's done a few churches here and there, but they're um, they're just kind of translating some of their commercial work, and they're looking at the church as another commercial project, and I think that's very detrimental um, to to the project because uh, there's not a deep understanding of the the purpose and what each element of that building. Uh, can can express one of the early things that our, our pastor talked about is because yes we are on the uh, very edge of the grounds of the University of Virginia that we wanted a church building that of itself evangelizes mm-hmm. we wanted something that just by the very structure by um, its presence is is proclaiming Jesus Christ and so we very intentionally built a church that is identifiably a church and Mm -hmm. it it kind of fits into what you think of as a church. And there are tremendous elements both on the exterior and the interior that without having much explanation needed are proclaiming Christ. Like one of my favorite elements is uh, above the door that faces the University of Virginia where our property is, uh, the door that faces the University of Virginia, it's the main entrance to the door. Um, there's the, a tympanum or a relief that has both St. Dominic and St. Thomas Aquinas meeting Jesus Christ. And um, St. Thomas is looking at Christ in the eyes and St. Dominic is looking at his heart mm-hmm. as they meet each other. And underneath of it are the famous words of St. Thomas Aquinas, nothing but you, O Lord. And like, that's, that's what we're proclaiming to the world. That's what we're proclaiming to the university of Virginia. It's nothing but Jesus. Uh, and that's what it's all about. And then you enter through that entrance into the church. And, yeah. and so that was our kind of one of our major guiding principles is that of the, the building itself by its very presence should be uh, evangelical in proclaiming Christ in that sense. And then we collaborated and uh, hired different architecture firms that you know, specialized in ecclesial architecture. I mean, we used a firm that is from New England. It's, I think, the oldest ecclesial architecture firm in the United States, uh, Cram and Ferguson. They built uh, some of the most uh, famous churches even in our province. Mm. You know, so they have over a century's worth of uh, history of just doing churches 
and they understand the ins and the outs of that, but also the very purpose and how to make it evangelical in that sense. It's not another commercial project for them and neither is it for us. It's the house of God. Boom. I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in hearing the kind of like exegesis of different parts of the church. We're going to take a quick break right here so you can uh, refill your coffee and you can uh, come back shortly and we'll be here waiting for you on God's Plenty. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. And we're back. So thanks for sticking with us here on God's Planning. Delighted to, uh, to be with you and I'm delighted to be here with Father Joseph Anthony Cress. Uh, we're talking a little bit about the building project in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, but, but kind of more broadly than that, we're thinking about what it means to build a big, bold and beautiful church and specifically how a church building is different than other buildings. And, and one of the elements of that is going to be the distinctively Christian features of this building, right? So it's all ordered towards the Eucharistic Lord. Uh, the altar of sacrifice occupies, occupies a place of prominence and uh, the entire congregation is seated in such a way as to accentuate the fact that there is something distinct that happens in this place and that the Lord is tabernacled here, right? So his Eucharistic presence is meant to radiate through the entirety of the church. We're making connections between the altar of sacrifice and the crucifix, right? We have these sight lines. We have this kind of linear perspective. All of it is to kind of tend to the glory of God. And maybe you've seen or heard um, professors, maybe Duncan Stroik or I think it's Dennis McNamara, who do these kind of talks on the architectural and theological exegesis of a sacred space, which is very helpful for us um, to kind of hear that, to have that walked through so that when we enter into a Christian space, we can be better attuned to identify uh, the type of symbolism, you know, so like it works often in, in signs and symbols that is meant to, you know, like, like sacraments, which is meant to convey sacred realities, to steep us in sacred realities uh, and to encourage us in prayer and in worship. So there are, you know, innumerable elements like this in the church at St. Thomas Aquinas. Why don't we just try to, uh, to pick out a couple and we can talk about things about those elements that are especially beautiful and especially sign rich. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about the the dome of the building. It's, I mean, we're in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's rare that you see this type of dome. What about its distinctive? Yeah, especially, I mean, it has a, it's a dome with a copper roof and it has a copper um, cupola on the top that has this beautiful gold cross on the top. So at night it's illuminated and you can see that dome. You can see the cross that is shining, glowing in the darkness um, from, a, from a major distance. Um, you can, you have to look through the trees a little bit, but um, if you're coming back from the football stadium, you turn the corner and boom, there's the cross. Um, cause we're, we're really close to the football stadium. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to, you know, head up a few home games at night and, uh, you know, on our way back from beating Virginia tech to see the cross shining and all its glory on, on a big win. But, um, other than that, it's the interior of the dome that is probably one of my favorite aspects and, and features of our church. It's this uh, beautiful blue color with gold stars throughout. And there's, there's a deep theology to this feature. It's something that is relatively common, I think, in many churches. I mean, you see the night sky with stars painted on the ceilings of many different churches. And it's that beauty of reinforcing to us the importance of being obedient to the will of God. And the stars are placed there to remind us of that, that 
these stars were obedient to the will of God who first created them and set them forth in motion. And in their obedience to the initiation of God and the path that the Lord has set out for each one of those stars, that when they came together, they they were the ones that directed the the magi, the wise men, to the infant Christ at his birth. And so when we look up into that dome and we see those stars, that we are reminded that when we are obedient to the will of God, when we place ourselves into his loving care and his hands and he directs our life, then we too can draw all nations to Christ, who is going to be eucharistically present in that very space. And it's, it's one of my favorite features. And I always just kind of take a deep breath and step back at that and remind myself that everything's okay. Uh, you know, it's not all on my shoulders, but the Lord has, has, uh, has me in his love and care and to, um, to surrender myself to his providence and his guidance in, in our life. And so that's, that's one of my favorites. And it's something that's, that's pretty spectacular, um, especially as a, a, a grand gesture on the interior of the dome. It's, it's very, um, very stark and demands, demands your attention. Um, one of the other things, and we were kind of talking before, uh, before air uh, about this, but um, it's on the front of the, our altar. We have this beautiful, beautiful marble altar that uh, was crafted in Italy and shipped over here for us. But the, the facade of that altar has the Eucharistic image of the pelican. And um, you know that image kind of a little better than I do, so I'll kick it over to you. But like how important image, um, especially on the altar sacrifice where the Eucharist is uh, sacrificed, um, the importance of that and the imagery of there. Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking, as you were describing the stars, I was thinking of a lecture that I heard by um, Professor McNamara about church architecture. And I think he said, I, I hope he said, otherwise I say, and I've just fabricated. Um, he says something about like how all church architecture has kind of eschatology built into it eschatology there, the word meaning, you know, like end time stuff. And I, um, I remember reading this article, you know, in St. Thomas Aquinas, where he talks about the signification of the sacraments. He says each sacrament conveys something about the past, something about the present and something about the future. When it talks about the past, he says it's commemorating the Lord's Paschal mystery. So all of his, his deeds and sufferings, which, you know, you have kind of distilled there um, in those, those Easter mysteries. And then he says, conveys something about the future, namely the grace and the virtues that are being communicated, the sacramental grace. And then it says something about the, uh, excuse me, that was something about the present. And then something about the future was like the life of heaven. And something that I think of uh, specifically when thinking about the stars, uh, I think about that last line in Dante's um, Paradiso, where he talks about the love that moves the sun and other stars, right? So this idea that like you would look up um, and that you would have a kind of insight into the life beyond. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's the sense that, you know, like uh, all worship is in the Holy Spirit, you know, by the agency of the Son and to the Father, but it's a specifically heaven-bound thing. And so um, then, you know, kind of turning our attention from that to the pelican on the front of the altar, we were talking about how, um, don't know exactly when it comes up first in the Christian tradition, but that um, St. Thomas Aquinas is... Uh, uh, he makes mention of the, the pelican in some of the prayers for the Feast of Corpus Christi. So it's a Eucharistic image because it was thought kind of in the antique church that the pelican would have fed his children or, or the mother pelican would have fed her children from her own flesh in, in, the, in the instance that other food could not be found. So you have there an image of the Lord who feeds his children, who feeds 
his brothers and sisters uh, with his own flesh in the Eucharist. And I think like um, there's actually a beautiful image in the refectory here at the Dominican House of Studies, and there's a, a, a copy of it at your priory in Charlottesville of all the Dominican saints gathered around the Lord. And that line about the Holy Pelican is inscribed at the bottom uh, where it says something to the effect of like Holy Pelican uh, who cleansed the unclean world um, from, from every stain of sin. One drop of your blood uh, basically is enough to have accomplished this work. So um, some other elements that are cool in the church, you, may, you made mention of the fact that um, uh, there's some etchings both on the altar and on the ambo. Uh, what, what's some of that imagery? So it's really, really awesome that we have, um, like I said, it's a Romanesque church. So you're finding a lot of arches uh, throughout. Um, on the exterior, we have uh, beautiful columns and there's arches throughout um, the the ambo and the, the altar. And they actually match each other because both they're made of the same material and the, the design itself is is matching to kind of stress that this is one sacrifice and liturgically i love that because you have uh, each the ambo where the the gospel is uh proclaimed and the altar of sacrifice are uh unified and they're dignified in the very very same way um and so in the arch work of each of those that you find a repetition of three symbols uh, the first symbol that we have is the sun, um, which is from the iconography of St. Thomas Aquinas, the sunburst in his chest. Um, so that's kind of one of the ways that you can tell it's St. Thomas Aquinas is if you see a Dominican fire, friar who has this sunburst in his chest, uh, you, you know that's St. That's Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who is the patron of our church. So you find that that's the first symbol. The second is the there's a star in that uh, archwork, and the star is actually representing Saint Dominic, the uh, the father of our order, the founder of our order, because um, it's the star from the brow of his forehead um, that's coming from his iconography. There, so we have Saint Saint Thomas Aquinas, and we have Saint Dominic there, and then the third image um, that we have is that of the pomegranate, which. For most people, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the the pomegranate—it's like one of these things is not like the other. Uh, but the pomegranate there is this kind of medieval symbol for preaching, and for us who are the order of preachers who live our life and structure our day in the way that we pray and study to make us better preachers of Christ and Him crucified, uh, we keep that image of the pomegranate on uh, the ambo and the altar because the pomegranate um, it kind of uh, explodes and casts uh, the seeds in all directions to, to fertilize the earth in, in that way. And just as the pomegranate does that, so too does our preaching go out into every direction. We scatter the seeds of the word of God through our preaching and his presence and the grace and mercy of his love that we cast that in all directions uh, just as the pomegranate does. And so it's a very uh, medieval, but kind of very rich image for fruitful preaching in, mm. in that sense. And so I, I just really, really love those three images, both on the ambo and on the altar. Yeah. One of these things is not like the other. You've got a star. I mean, in as much as the sun is a star and then another star, and then you've got a fruit, which is crazy. Um, also pomegranates like strike fear into the hearts of Dominicans, like pomegranates and beets, terrible things because they stain white clothing, like nobody's business. They're like Absolutely. beyond red wine. Like you would not imagine. So <laughs> if you ever eat a pomegranate wearing a white habit, it's uh, it's just pretty perilous. You, yeah. 
you just can't bite into that sucker from the side because it's just going to end up everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just wear like a like a tent or an apron, you know, or cover yourself in a hazmat suit. Um, so, okay. So these are some kind of nice basic images at work there in the church. And there still remains some, some final kind of touch-ups and a punch yeah. list to be worked through, but you, you're like looking at a few weeks. Well, you're, you're, you're projecting to, to open here this weekend for Pentecost, right? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're preparing and we're, we're ready to go for Pentecost this weekend. We got our building permit or our occupancy permits. We are going through, you know, all the necessary steps for registration, for making sure that our faithful are able to attend mass safe and sound. And, um, you know, there's always going to be last little fine tunings and things like that, but for the most part, we're good to go. Yeah. So the original open, I guess, or the dedication was projected for the last weekend in April. And mm-hmm. here we are the last weekend in May. So this is a different thing. Uh, but the Lord is such that in his providence, when something departs from him in a way that was kind of unforeseen by those at the, you know, like in the event, he makes it return to him by way also unforeseen. So, you know, who could have seen a global pandemic? Um, I didn't, yeah, for the record, I just want everybody to know I did not foresee a global pandemic happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, late April, late April, it's going to be great. And then you're like, all right, perfect. This is, this is something different. Okay, yeah, wasn't, yeah. wasn't banking on that. You know? but, but the Lord makes it good in as much as the people can come back to a worship space that's bigger, that's more accommodating, that affords for you know, stricter social distancing and you know, is, is, is an adequate and dignified space whereby the Lord can have you know, spiritual sacrifice offered in excellent fashion. So wild times, you know, it's just, this is the rodeo uh, for which we have signed up. It seems. Uh, so with that, we're going to wind things down here on God's Planning. So thanks so much for joining us. If you got some um, architecture nerds uh, among your group of friends, feel, uh, please feel free to share this episode with them. And uh, we, we encourage, you know, we encourage sharing of all sorts. So if you would uh, kindly pray for us, pray for the work of the, the podcast, we're praying for you. We remember you and the sacrifice of the mass um, and specifically as a, uh, as that becomes more widely available to, uh, to the lay faithful. So yeah, with that, um, all the best to you and yours. Uh, God bless you. And we'll see you next time on God's planning. Thanks for listening to God's planning, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.